I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This episode of Base Layer is brought to you by Nexo. Nexo is instant and efficient, just like the SAD. They offer a complete digital asset banking service featuring savings accounts with up to 12% interest, digital asset credit for just 5.9% APR, in exchange with 75 digital asset and fiat pairs and top prices, and loads more all wrapped up for you in a single Nexo wallet. Try it now at nexo.io, that's N-E-X-O.io, or search for the Nexo wallet app on Google Play or in the App Store. There's nearly 60 billion in the DeFi ecosystem today. The platforms are incredible, but there's still one major issue, fees. That's why I'm glad to partner with Paraswap. They've quickly become the connective tissue between various DeFi apps, including DEXs and other DeFi services like Compound and Aave. The new algorithm brings your gas cost down by 30%. If you want to access DeFi platforms with the cheapest fee possible, I highly recommend Paraswap. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer, and it's going to be an amazing one. I have Do Kwan, the founder of Terra Money, with me today. Do, how are you? Pretty good. Thank you so much for having me. So if you are in this world of digital assets, you already know about Terra. Terra has been on the lips of everyone that I talk to. Keep hearing about Anchor, keep hearing about Mirror, a lot of different things that you guys are doing there in terms of building an amazing ecosystem. And so before we get too far into Terra, into this ecosystem that I speak of, what we always like to do on the show is, what did you do prior to Terra? How did you get into this world of distributed and decentralized systems? What really kind of sparked your interest and to become a founder and to be a builder of what is becoming a very significant part of this ecosystem? Yeah, so um, I I used to be a sort of a Hermione Granger type of character uh, when I was still in school. So. like when I was in college, I, um, you know, found myself, uh, graduating in three years with a double major from Stanford. Um, and when I joined the industry for the first time, I wanted to, uh, you know, create lots of impact right away. So, um, I ended up going to Microsoft because they were the guys that was giving me the highest paycheck. Like literally there was no other metric <laughs> when I was doing it. The assumption was that if they're willing to pay me lots of money, that they would be willing to put me to lots of work. That was incorrect. Mm-hmm. So when I joined the firm, I was sort of like very surprised at how, um, you know, in lots of big companies, there's lots of people that don't actually do anything or create lots of value. So I think we had, you know, like a reasonably sized dev team and sort of like the cell that I was working at about 34 people and only about like four or five guys that was doing anything from, from, from my limited perspective anything of, you know, substantial value. And most people were just sort of, you know, chilling. 
So I found myself working on more and more uh, side projects uh, during my time there until I started to uh, build something that was sufficiently interesting enough for me to quit the company and then to create my own startup. So basically uh, what this company called Anyfi did was that we created uh, Wi-Fi mesh networks that connected user devices like cell phones and laptops together such that even if a user doesn't have direct connection to the internet, he could gain internet access through like a multi-hop network of other users around them. So we sold this as a B2B networking solution to large venues like amusement parks and airports and shopping malls. And so for example, like our initial first partner was uh, this park called Everland Park in Korea that was uh, that has about eight to 10 million, million visitors annually. Uh, and basically it was like a perfect sort of implementation for them because just by installing software into a bunch of their venue apps, they were able to improve internet uh, speed significantly without having to invest tens of millions of dollars in backhaul. Mm-hmm. So as to how I got into crypto, you can imagine how like a standard Google search query for distributed network renders things like Wi-Fi mesh, mesh networks, but it also renders things like, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And sort of that's how I first got my introduction to the space. And really sort of a tipping moment for me was when a friend of mine inv- invited me to this small Facebook group. Uh, it had about eight people and they were, you know, discussing things like Ethereum and Monero and uh, different things like that. And I, I found myself getting sucked more and more into the industry until I decided to, um, you know, work on Terra full time towards the end of 2017. Right. So let's jump into Terra. Terra is a blockchain protocol that supports stable programmable payments and open financial infrastructure development. It is supported by a basket of fiat-pegged senior share-style stable coins, which are algorithmically stabilized by a native crypto asset, Luna. As I said again, you're going to hear a lot of different things here because what has happened with Terra is that there is a whole ecosystem here that's been born over the last few years. So what we'd like to do, though, is... So I just read out what Terra is. If you had to explain Terra and the ecosystem to someone who is just starting to understand, and I say this all the time, they're just starting to understand Bitcoin. They kind of get it. Um, They're asking much more sophisticated questions about mining, about rewards. They're asking questions like what happens, you know, in 2104 or 2040 when, you know, there's no more Bitcoin to be mined. How do those networks become incentivized or continue to be incentivized? So they're starting to understand dynamics here. So don't do it like ELI-5, but talk to people, if you could, about what Terra is and what you have effectively started to build there. Yeah, so, um, you know, Bitcoin is doing very well as an asset class, but as a utility token, it's actually not doing that well. So the biggest problem with Bitcoin, when you try to apply it to everyday commerce and, uh, you know, uh, financial transactions is that its price fluctuates uh, quite rapidly against the dollar and in jurisdictions where you're trying to apply to commerce uh, that you know that don't use the dollar it's volatile against whatever local fiat currency that they might be using so um, this is especially a problem in sort of the settlement side where uh, generally in payments you have um, a set of vendors that accept the user's money. So you call these things payment gateways. And uh, it takes a few days before the user actually paying 
and then the merchant being settled. Um, this is a problem because over the course of several days, Bitcoin's price can fluctuate wildly. And when prices are uh, that merchants are getting settled in is higher than whatever the users paid, then the user is unhappy because then they overpaid for the transaction. And then if the price of Bitcoin is lower than what the user paid at, then the merchant suffers because uh, his his margins have essentially been cut in two. So, uh, and this problem sort of gets amplified if you're not talking about, you know, very normal, uh, simple transactions, but you're talking about complex financial derivatives. So, uh, for example, like if you're trying to think about how user might be using Bitcoin as a source of savings, if Bitcoin's price doesn't keep going up, then it's a very poor source of savings, even if there's a little bit of volatility, because that might be the moment where their user might need to withdraw their money uh, to pay for, let's say, mom's surgery or to uh, pay for a family vacation or something like that. So exposing users to day-to-day volatility of an asset class like Bitcoin uh, generally hasn't proven um, good for usability. So this is where, you know, uh, stablecoins like Terra kicks in. And I think um, like a easy way of thinking about how Terra is supposed to work is it's sort of like a, um, like a decentralized version of Libra that has started to show, showcase early product market fit across, uh, lots of different use cases of money. So we have coins that are pegged to the price of, let's say the US dollar or the Korean won or the Singapore dollar. And then the idea is that by pegging, uh, digital currencies to whatever the local denomination of value might be, you make them uh, instantly usable in sort of uh, day-to-day payments, in designing financial applications on top of this. Uh, so it sort of unlocks a lot of use cases that Bitcoin can't tap into. And whereas, uh, you know, Libra was very quickly censored by uh, global regulators because of its size and scale, uh, Terra doesn't really have a centralized backing entity. It's, it's a decentralized group of people that are looking to uh, create the ecosystem and sort of uh, bringing it up from a bottom uh, a bottom up kind of approach. So right. it's been able to create uh, protocols like Anchor, which uh, make Terra stablecoins really attractive to hold at a twenty percent APR. Yep. It creates things like Mirror Protocol, whereby users can use Terra stablecoins to invest into any asset class that they might want, including things like U.S. equities and various different types of commodities. Right. And uh, sort of like an exploding ecosystem of different financial applications that are built on top of the network. So let's dig into that. So you mentioned the difference between something like a Libra or obviously now it's called Diem. Um, so we'll, we'll just obviously use the new terminology there. Um, but Luna is the native staking token recognized by the Terra protocol. Um, and so it appears that uh, the, the token itself, Luna, is there as a staking mechanism to effectively make the whole network work. And that obviously is a digital asset in itself. And so talk to us about kind of how the system works in terms of governance. I also know that there are phases of Luna. There's unbonded and bonded and unbonding. You know, if you could just go into what those mean, then we'll go into, as I as you alluded to, we'll go into Anchor, which everyone is talking about uh, right now. And so we'll go into what Anchor is. You alluded to it a little bit. And then we'll go into Mirror. But if you could, so Luna's purpose, obviously, as a more of a staking mechanism. And as I said, again, the phases of Luna that you talk about, unbonded, bonded, and unbonding. And also would love you to discuss 
in this world of Ethereum, where we're getting a lot of usage from DeFi and NFTs and gaming, gas has been up. You know, there's been a lot of gas. How are you dealing with, you know, a high amount of transactions that are happening on the protocol itself? And how are you mitigating some of that? Yeah, so uh, perhaps it'll be most useful to talk about what Luna is. So um, just imagine that when you're using money, there was a way to buy an equity stake in the US dollar. Um, that's kind of what Luna is for the family of monies that, that are Terra stable coins. So Luna captures value from uh, the Terra economy in two different ways. Number one, transaction fees. Every time that a Terra stablecoin is used for, let's say, a trade on the mirror platform, let's say to make a deposit into Anchor or to make day-to-day -day payments using our family of payments like Chai or MimiPay, um, a small percentage of the transaction, let's say 0.4%, is paid uh, to people that stake Luna in our, our delegated proof-of-stake network. So in some sense, as more transactions happen on the pair network through the growth of our many applications, then cash flows to Luna increases. Secondly, in order to mint a dollar's worth of Terra stablecoin, you need to burn a dollar's worth of Luna. So in some sense, as the circulating supply of Terra stablecoins grows, once again, through the growth of the apps, Luna becomes more and more scarce. So, uh, you know, lower supply, higher unit price. So in some sense, like you can think about Luna as like an ownership stake in sort of the protocol of money that Terra is creating with a hundred propensity to dividend and then ever diminishing supply. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so as I alluded to, how is, you know, I think a lot of people are really interested in, in governance these days. You know, we've seen, especially in the world of DeFi, some stumbles in governance. How do you actually look at governance in terms of a decentralized network like this? You have validators out there. You know, you have you know effectively participants in the network, and not every one of them has the same type of incentive model. They don't have all the same mental models. They're all not in the same world. You know, in terms of economic geographic location, how do you get your governance working uh, in a way that obviously is optimized? Yeah, so I think governance on chain uh, tends to work well if it's on a subject matter that people find very interesting. So, for example, like if you have governance proposals regarding thing, things like uh, how much uh, cash flows the protocol should capture, so like dividend profiles, for instance, or let's say on Mirror, like what type of assets that you would like to see listed that people are very enthusiastic. They might have allegiances to different types of assets that are trying to get listed, or if it's something that directly benefits their cash flow, uh, their, their bottom line, right? If, if it's something that improves dividend profiles or something like that, then people are highly engaged. But I, I think the problem with uh, most of the governance assets is even though there's like a lot of protocols that are providing lots of value in, in DeFi, there aren't that many assets that capture value correctly. So people sort of, you know, uh, sort of loop together all the different things that need decision points and tend to give the power to decide those to community governance, which doesn't really work that well. So, for example, like the community shouldn't be empowered in its early days to decide like key economic parameters, for instance, like, for example, what is the loan to value ratio in, in money markets, for instance? 
because that's that's like a really complex decision that should be backed by economic research, not just by you know let's say DeFi dad on Twitter uh, posting like a seven thread, uh, you know seven tweet thread on like why the LTV should be set for this particular asset because it's exciting, right? Yeah, I I, um, I I I I agree with that. That so again, it's interesting in the in the thinking here is that. You know, sometimes, you know, in systems, you need to crawl before you walk, you need to walk before you run. And so what you're basically alluding to is that in many of these systems, you can't just go to running from day one, correct? Exactly. So in the beginning of protocols, people that participate in governance is likely going to be involved in lots of different other things. Mm -hmm. So they might have full-time jobs. They might uh, also be holding lots of different other governance protocols so That's they right. don't have the yeah. bandwidth it's it's not it's not so much that they, they don't have the resources to be able to do it they just don't have the time to mm-hmm. correctly assess the risks of complex governance protocols so i think in the beginning sort of limiting the surface of governance to something that's really simple and attractive to look at uh is good and then governance for these protocols should evolve over time so for example uh makers governance in the beginning as complex as it, as, as it was was uh fairly funds and uh you know professional focused so uh that that's sort of why it made sense but as you know time passed and maker supply decentralized over time then this complex governance model started to make a little bit more sense right because there there were lots of people that were spending a lot of time just looking at maker to be able to uh, reason about governance proposals in the right way right so let's shift over to anchor as i alluded to this is something that I've had probably 20 people talk to me about in the last month, and that's a lot of people. So Anchor is a savings protocol offering low volatility yield on Terra stablecoin deposits. The protocol defines a money market between a lender looking to earn stable yields on their stablecoins and a borrower looking to borrow stablecoins on stakeable assets. So talk to us about Anchor. How did this come about? What was the what was the kind of initial drive here and where are we today with Anchor? What are you what is it offering uh liquidity providers? What is it providing those that are participating in the protocol? Sure. So the value proposition of Anchor is pretty simple. So if you look at the savings rates that people are making in traditional finance, it doesn't make sense anymore. So the entire premise of sort of the federated banking model was that you would lend out your money to a private depository institution, which is the commercial bank. And then these banks would then lend out that money to various different types of investments, and then they would capture margin in between. So in some sense, like the commercial bank used to look a lot like uh, money market protocols that we see in DeFi today, but that's no longer true because the yields that we're making on deposits uh, no longer justify our cost of capital, nor even inflation. So like the dollar is inflating at at least 3% per annum, but uh, the yields that we get on in Wells Fargo is, is effectively zero. In some jurisdictions like Japan or Europe, we're, we're paying negative yields, which is, uh, I think it's a very elaborate form of theft by central banks. Um, but essentially, like we need to get to a state where the user isn't scrambling to uh, invest their money into asset classes that they don't understand, which is why you see prices of almost every single asset pumping, like even daily, 
right? But we need to get to a state where frugality and savings is valued above you know, recklessness and blind investing. So the goal of Anchor is to be able to produce an attractive enough interest rate where it justifies users' cost and capital. Um, but if you look at the rest of DeFi protocols, and there's a lot of lending markets that do that allow you to earn a yield on stable coins like USDC or Tether, uh, the yields are too volatile. And that's because on Compound or Aave, uh, what powers these interest rates is a demand for leverage on, well, essentially Ethereum. Right. Uh, so uh, you you would see interest rates rise as high as 12% in, in one hour and then fall to almost zero in the next hour. So uh, this this type of volatile interest rate doesn't really make sense for most users because they would like to know what terms that they're getting into when they're making the deposit, which helps them reason about, OK, I'm going to keep my deposits here for the foreseeable time being. And then I'm just going to forget about it uh, until I have to take my money out. So, but it, they can't really do that if their yield is uh, changing hour by hour. Right. So, um, how Anchor works is is that it's a fixed income protocol um, wh- where the rates are, you know, subject to change as uh, governance evolves. But it's essentially a fixed income protocol which offers you a twenty percent interest on your stablecoin deposits. So the value proposition is really simple: if you keep if you deposit Terra USD into the Anchor smart contract, one year later, you're going to get 20% more than what you put in. Where and you you can withdraw anytime. So if you withdraw sometime in between, you, you'll just get a reduced percentage of the APR. Um, so the basically the how we expect um, Anchor to be rolled out to the public is uh, in two different forms. Number one. We think Anchor is going to be a really valuable primitive to be hooked up into the rest of the DeFi stack. So a lot of uh, DeFi protocols either distribute uh, tokens or they um, involve stablecoins in some form of yield farming strategies. But if you could, you know, sort of lever up your protocol on top of the yield bearing stablecoin uh, enabled through Anchor protocol, then that's a much better value proposition. You can also start to see uh, you know, some of these fledgling, fledgling DAOs, well, not so much fledgling with, you know, tens, hundreds of millions, and even billions of dollars in capital, start to keep some of their community treasuries mm-hmm. uh, in Anchor, such that you have a self-sustaining DAO. You can have smart contracts that are built on top of Anchor, such that instead of having to pay somebody explicitly for a good, you can stream them your, the cash flows that are coming in from Anchor. So imagine like a protocol where uh, if you just keep USD there, you get free subscriptions to Netflix and, you know, uh, w- whatever type of service that you might like to purchase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the second go-to-market use case is uh, sort of Anchor as an SDK for fintech companies. And the idea is that, um, you know, like now that Anchor is sort of a fixed income protocol, it's actually pretty easy to reach a state where uh, apps that people use on a day-to-day basis, like Revolut or Venmo or like Chai in South Korea, uh, can hook up to Anchor such that they're earning uh, a 20% yield on their deposits. So basically, uh, by wrapping up with you know fiat on-ramps uh, in six different currencies over ACH wire and debit, so we have an integration with Prime Trust to be able to do this, we can get to a state where users can, or, or let's say the wallets that manage user deposits, can simply transfer fiat into the Anchor system and then to earn an attractive yield on top of it. So 
anywhere where there, ha- there happens to be money at rest, Anchor can service with its incredible yield. So we've talked about Terra, we've talked about Luna, we've talked about Anchor. As I said, again, everyone's talking about Anchor. Mirror. Mirror is the last one that a lot of people are talking about. And again, this is an ecosystem, and it's really kind of amazing that there's this whole ecosystem here. So Mirror is a DeFi protocol powered by smart contracts on the Terra network that enables the creation of synthetic assets called mirrored assets. We've talked about mirrored, you know, kind of synthetics for a while. We've had, um, you know, Kane on from synthetics a long time ago. And so you guys can go back to that. Synthetic assets are very interesting because it allows the ability for more market participants around the world to get access to things like Tesla stock. Uh, it's not direct, obviously, Tesla stock. It's more of a reference asset. Talk to us about Mirror and about the growth here. Sure. So uh, Mirror is the, uh, the first DeFi protocol that we launched uh, at Terra late last year. So the premise is pretty simple. So you anybody can create and trade different types of mirrored assets that can peg itself to, well, essentially anything. So, uh, you know, the initial 30 assets or so that was created on the mirror protocol had a strong focus on U.S. equities. And the reason why we did that is because U.S. equities as an asset class is globally compelling because uh, U.S. companies are globally innovative. But uh, getting quality price exposure to U.S. equities is difficult in lots of different places. So, for example, like if you uh, look at, let's say, China or Thailand, uh, it's the types of U.S. equities that a retail user might be able to buy is is greatly limited. Or if you look at Korea or Japan, uh, capital gains on foreign equities is taxed at 26% by single stock, whereas uh, taxes on domestic equities is only 0.3%. So the general local regulation and tax schemes are created to be adversarial to people that are looking to gain access to uh, U.S. equities. Um, there's also a bunch of uh, user experience hurdles. So, for example, in most hours in Asia, uh, markets are closed uh, when you're trying to trade U.S. equities. So you have to trade in the middle of the night. It's hard to get fractional shares for, let's say, expensive stock, uh, so to speak. Um, but all those things are possible by having a tokenized version that tracks the price of you know, any, any U.S. equity on, on different types of places. <laughs> So the mirror protocol really took off in sort of the GameStop uh, Wall Street bets movement, uh, which happened earlier this year. Uh, and then it started to catch a lot of attention uh, of people that was looking for sort of an unbiased, unmanipulated venue to trade uh, equities outside of Robinhood. The, um, so in terms of metrics as they stand today, there's about $2.2 billion of capital. Uh, locked up in mirrored assets after four months of operation. Uh, daily trading volume is um, anywhere between 60 to $100 million per day on these synthetic assets and uh, growing rapidly. So uh, it's it's kind of interesting that we were able to stand up a synthetic assets protocol with limited asset coverage and then get to a state where lots and lots of people are really interested in the idea that they can trade uh, assets globally anywhere that they want using uh, KYC-less uh, crypto primitives. That's amazing. And great growth on that. Congratulations. So as we're wrapping up, uh, Do, where can people find out more about Terra, about Luna, about Anchor, about Mirror? Where can they start their journey and start to learn more after they listen to this podcast and get really interested? 
Yeah, so our website, Terra.Money, is sort of like a great sort of front page into the various things that are happening in the Terra ecosystem. Uh, there's outbound links to places like Chai, our payments uh, payments application to Mirror Protocol, uh, to Anchor, as well as like an ecosystem map of all the, uh, you know, uh, you know, close to like 100 different apps that are building on top of Terra at the moment. Awesome. Looking to stay engaged. Awesome. This is Do Kwan founder of Terra Money, as I alluded to, this is becoming an ecosystem of ecosystems out there. A lot of different things that are happening. Um, there's a few out there that are uh, kind of building those types of very, very sticky ecosystems that are tackling DeFi, that are tackling, tackling money, that are tackling medium of exchange, that are tackling yield. And so really, I appreciate you coming on Doe. Hopefully we can catch up with you in a few months and see how the continued growth uh, of this ecosystem is going. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.